when you consider what is our motivation to practice the Dhamma, our underlying intention is coming from metta and panya as the basic goodwill towards ourselves wishing that we're to be peaceful and happy goodwill towards others that our own happiness will benefit others also the wisdom that sees suffering recognizes there is suffering in life leading on to the wish to end it so the Buddha himself says I teach suffering and the end of suffering in Thailand often they don't talk so much about the practice of metta as we do in the West. Metta meditation, metta bhavana, not because it's not important, but because it's almost so obvious that it doesn't need to be mentioned. In the sense that being a Buddhist culture, with many generations of Buddhist practitioners. Practice is synonymous with metta and panya, suffering and the end of suffering. So when people say, I'm practicing meditation, they know their meaning, they're also practicing developing metta. When we practice meditation, our aim is obviously to end suffering. So we're doing that which is kind to ourselves. And that implicitly will affect others in a good way. When we make our minds peaceful, when we practice mindfulness and develop samadhi, It necessarily means metta is present when samadhi arises because we're overcoming the hindrance of ill will and aversion. So when we say we're practicing bhavana, often they do say metta bhavana. It just goes together. We are developing goodwill as we practice. You cannot practice the Buddhist path without developing metta and goodwill. So it's often not mentioned so much. You don't hear so much talk about guided metta meditations and so on. Whereas in the West, the culture is not so Buddhist and meditation is not so well understood. The Buddhist path is not so familiar. So often the emphasis is on metta there's a lot of negativity, different kinds of suffering associated with negativity and aversion in the West. But we 
practicing to understand suffering and bring it to an end. That's the thing that is most useful to us, most useful to others. It's the most useful gift we can give. Dhammadhanang sabadhanang jinati. The giving of Dhamma is the greatest gift. Giving people the means to overcome suffering is the best thing you can do for them to help others. The best way to do that all is develop it, the path, find out for ourselves how to overcome suffering, actually do it. Um, so we're both being an example to others and then we can share that with others, how to do it. So this is what motivates us, metta, panya. Uh, both of these qualities are liberating to the heart, both on the level of samadhi, temporary liberation, and on the level of panya or insight, leading to ultimate liberation or complete liberation of heart, uprooting the roots of suffering, greed, anger, delusion. So lots of our practice is involved with looking and understanding suffering, dukkha, observing it, getting to know it. And that's one of the hardest things for humans to do. You might say it's not in our nature, it's not our habit. The habit of the untrained, unenlightened mind is to run from dukkha, to avoid it, to distract ourselves from it to cover, cover it over. If we have any pain, we yelp, we go, ouch. We let off the dukkha by a little scream or comment. And then we try and get away from it, the source of the pain. If it's mental pain, similarly we go, ouch, maybe our ouch is a complaint or a sigh or a tear those are our immediate reactions to dukkha and then it leads to a movement and action to try and get away from the dukkha or get rid of it somehow rather than looking at it and investigating it and it, what it is and what its causes we tend to just run So just coming to live in a monastery, we're already facing up to a lot of dukkha because our ability to run away from it is severely limited by the Vinaya and the peaceful place we're in, the simplicity of the lifestyle. You can't run too far. You have to live with yourself and practicing the Vinaya and bringing up mindfulness. You're aware of yourself every day. Maybe not completely aware yet, but more aware than perhaps you were before in the lay life. You can't run. You can't run from others. They see you every day in the monastery. Our habits, our personality, our behavior is on show. It's exposed. 
we can't be too and we can't deceive others in the lay life a lot of time and energy is spent deceiving other people maybe not in grandly evil ways but just in more common ways we deceive others in the sense we're hiding a lot of our true thoughts, feelings, behavior from others. So if you have a job you can't say everything you want to say or do everything you want to do otherwise you lose your job. You have a relationship, you're always trying to keep that relationship so you're often you're hiding things. When we go to any kind of social event or trying to, when we're involved with others, we're always trying to present a good image of ourselves and so on. That's the lay life, but in the monastic life, you strip all that bare and we can't deceive others for very long because we're just living together and the Vinaya is so refined and everyone is practicing mindfulness, developing insight, contemplating, observing. It's not easy to deceive, so we strip away a lot of that, get down to the truth. We have to face that in ourselves, and we have to accept other people see us. And that brings up dukkha, but it's also for the ending of dukkha, by developing more awareness, more understanding, because we can't run away so easily. We can't distract ourselves for very long in a monastery. Dukkha becomes apparent. Uh, behavior and mental behavior, physical behavior becomes apparent quickly. This is in our favor, even though it's sometimes a challenge, because it means we can really get down to the nitty gritty, the real details of our dukkha and where it comes from and what's bringing up dukkha and you start to learn quite quickly in a monastery what leads to dukkha what leads to the opposite more peace more calm happiness in the, as a state of mind you learn that quite quickly because you can't run away from dukkha so much you have to look at it and learn about it so we live in the monastery, we're far away from family and friends and a lot of the comforts, material comforts. We don't have money and so on, so we can't just indulge every desire. The Vinaya streamlining our behavior, so we're becoming aware of our, particularly our unwholesome intentions the more greedy, selfish intentions, the more angry, unwholesome intentions. Become aware of them. And so we're seeing where dukkha is being generated in our own lives. Which hopefully leads on to the next reflection, what do we have to do to end the dukkha? Or we have to abandon the cause. So abandon these tendencies, the selfishness, the greed, the anger, the jealousy, the delusions obviously that takes time but at least we can see what we have to do we can also trust in the practice of the Vinayana monastery that even though we are kind of stripping ourselves down 
we're laid bare, our defilements are laid bare and so on. Our dukkha is becoming more obvious and we can't run away. But we can trust that everyone else is in the same position and there's a basic good intention that we all wish to practice and understand about dukkha and practice for the end of dukkha. So that sense of trust gives rise to, or is partly it's brought, it's maintained by our personal integrity. We have faith, willingness to practice the Vinaya properly, and then that sense of goodwill towards each other. So we can trust each other. So even though we are working with the very nuts and bolts of dukkha and how it's caused, we don't have to feel too threatened by other people when we're keeping the Vinaya. We have that sense of supporting each other. That's different from the world where we people hide their dukkha and their kalesis because it's seen as a weakness and people can bully you or take advantage of you, give you a hard time. As in a monastery, it's different. We appreciate each other on a deeper level, that basic aspiration to end suffering. We try and nourish that in ourselves and in others. And we all understand sometimes it's easier to practice, sometimes it's more difficult. There's nobody who comes and lives in a monastery and just has a smooth, easy time. If there is, that person is probably not going very deep into their practice and not really uprooting much of their dukkha. If you listen to any monk who's practiced, especially one who's been practicing many years, they'll tell you, is, you know, there is, we do have to go through some dukkha in order to transcend it, you know, the dukkha for the ending of dukkha. In order to understand dukkha, you have to look at it. You have to face up to it, go through it. But it can be transcended. We can go through dukkha. We can come to the end of dukkha. Maybe not all of our dukkha yet, but at least some dukkha we can see fading out. And this is why our teachers encourage us to be patient and to work with the mind, not just to give in to every desire, every mood, but to be able to also to watch moods come and go, desires come and go, rather than just try and follow them or indulge them. That's based on good, solid experience. It's not, they're just idealistic or saying, oh, that's how the Buddha taught, it should be like that. It's because our teachers have practiced in this same way They've been through the same kind of dukkha that we've been through, but they've come to understand it and realized in the end, well, there's nothing to get attached to, nothing to really suffer with anyway. It's all just coming through delusions. It's all just fabrications, conditions of mind. There's nothing very solid or real in any of it. The more they practice, the more they see that, so the more the mind is free from dukkha.
one thing that helps us to deal with dukkha very quickly that we can all aspire to and we all talk about attaining samadhi and how difficult it is but wisdom is there for the taking it's, we all have intelligence so that's one of the qualities of a human being we're intelligent we can think we can reason we can use our minds so Ajahn Chao is always encouraging monks to use their intelligence to wisely reflect on their situation, their own particular situation. You know, the formal word is yoni manasikara, but just learning to wisely reflect on what's going on to understand better. This is something we can do at any time, any place. But it does take training and practice, just as the development of mindfulness, samadhi, keeping the vinaya takes training. Wise reflection, it's something you practice in. And you get better at it the more you do it. As learning to turn your attention back on yourself, reflect on your own state of mind, your own act actions, what's good and bad, right and wrong, what's leading to what. What is, if you do have suffering, well, where is it coming from? Is there any way I can look at this that will help to get through this suffering or end it? Are you really using the mind to understand better what's going on? He said, when Ajahn Charles said one of the first times he really understood this was when he was a young monk on Tudong in the forest with... I think malaria for the first time or one of the first times when he was in the forest without any medicine or medical help and very weak and miserable because of the strength of the disease, the effect on the body with nothing really to help him in terms of externals, you know, medical help maybe just a bit of herbal medicine which probably didn't work very well and all the scattered states of mind associated with fever and a weak body you know, all the sort of I wish I was at home I wish I was back home in the comfort of home with home cooking and all that and all the things we think of when we're ill but he was also intent on ending suffering so he's thinking why do I how can I solve all this mental suffering going on which is adding to the burden of the physical suffering of the illness which he was aware he could only be patient with but the mental suffering and all the anxiety and aversion to it how can he deal with that so he said his first kind of insight into wise reflection was just looking at the forest animals, particularly the deer, deer came by and reflected, well, deer probably get ill as well as human beings. They'll have their kind of illnesses. They don't have doctors and medicine. They have to just bear with it, being out in the forest in all weathers, all conditions. And they just carry on. It's just a very simple reflection, but he said that was a way he just turned his mind to consider comparing a deer and then back to himself and seeing all the 
kind of unnecessary or additional suffering he was creating in his mind around the illness was really just unnecessary suffering. A lot of mental proliferation coming through a lack of wisdom, a lack of understanding. But reflecting like this, it quietened his mind, which is the point of any kind of wise reflection, is it brings your mind to quieten down, be more at peace with whatever situation there is. Even when there's physical dukkha you can't get rid of, you can learn to be at peace with it through wise reflection. And you see in his talks, he, a lot of his, the Dhamma he was passing on was giving you tips and examples of how to develop wisdom in the different situations you get in, in your practice. Because we can save ourselves so much suffering by just applying wisdom in different situations at different times. Another example he gave, or several examples, when he went to stay with Lumpur Ginnery, one of his early teachers, who probably had a good effect on him because Lumpur Ginnery is quite dissimilar to Ajahn Chah in many ways. Lumpur Ginnery was very quiet, introverted character. He was a disciple of Ajahn Sao, as we know, had formerly wished to become a Pacheka Buddha, had that character of just being very quiet, introverted, not given to giving long talks and going out meeting a lot of pe people, very self-contained, quiet monk. He could teach, but often very short, pithy statements, meaningful statements, but quite short. And Lumpur Ginnery was similar, very quiet. Ajahn Chard met him once, I think he went off again and came back. He said the second time he went to stay with Lumpur Ginnery, he wanted to learn more from him. Ajahn Chah was, although he's very mindful and wise monk, his character is more, you might say, extrovert. He was, he did have the gift of being able to teach others, so he was always quite popular with monks and laity. I, he probably wanted to learn something from Lumpur Ginnery. So the second time he went to stay there, he kind of made this sort of determination, uh, Lumpur Ginnery, he's not going to speak to me, I'm not going to speak to him then. We'll just have a competition to see who can not speak. Because when he arrived, Lumpur Ginnery didn't say, oh, you can stay the panzer here. So, and he didn't ask to stay the panzer there. He just kind of came and settled in and nothing was said and it's like he knew he was deliberately not saying anything and Lumpur Ginnery knew he was not saying anything and they're both just practicing not saying anything and that's how they lived with that kind of mutual understanding it's only when nearer to the Vasa Lumpur Ginnery knew Ajahn Char's character who is practicing not asking for anything as he was trying to undermine his his greed his attachment for requisites which was a big problem in the early years and he was undermining it by just being determined not to ask for anything even if his robe were falling off his back which they were 
or his bowl was leaking and broken, which it was. He just wouldn't ask anybody for anything. Practice letting go of his desires. And his robes were falling apart, so Lumpur Ginnery had had some cloth offered, so he asked somebody to sew it for Ajahn Chah before Vasa, which was a kind of sign, well, he's probably letting me say, stay the Vasa because he's sewing, had some robes sewed for me. And Ajahn Chah accepted them. Bajan Chah was always noticing how silent Lumpur Ginnery was. He's a very active monk. He's always pottering about, cleaning the monastery, mending things, sewing. He's quite active. But he didn't speak much. He'd just say a few words here and there, pointing to the Dhamma occasionally. And at first, Ajahn Chah was a bit frustrated by that. He would observe Lumpur Ginnery because he, you know, he had this reputation of being enlightened but he wasn't fully sure yet because he'd only just got to know him. He was always observing him and he had his doubts because he thought, hmm, Lumpur Ginnery sits meditation just for a few minutes and then gets up and goes and does some sweeping or something. Or he does three or four steps, goes onto his walking path, just does a few steps and then goes off and does something else. And he's thinking, hmm, he can't be enlightened, he can't have attained much, he can't meditate very long. And he realized later he got, got that perception completely wrong. And Puginri already was very wise, very peaceful. And he even pointed that Ajahn Chah's thinking was out of line later, meaning he even had psychic powers, he knew what Ajahn Chah was thinking. Ajahn Chah was the opposite, full on, he's doing lots of sitting, lots of walking. Obviously, he's a lot younger than Lumpur Ginnery, still practicing very hard in that way. And whatever he did, he did full on. So he did, at some point, I think he was sewing a robe for Lumpur Ginnery, and he'd just sew and sew and sew all day, all night, without resting, just full on. And Lumpur Ginnery said, What's the big rush? came up over talked to him, what's the big rush? He said, well, I want to sew this so that then I can go off, go to wandering and go to this place. And the beginner, he said, well, what are you going to do after you've been there? Well, then I'll wander off there and a bit more and I'll go to another place. And then what are you going to do? Well, I'll wander a bit more and I'll go to another place. And Lumpur was just pointing out how Jen Chah's mind was full of kind of ambition and desire to go here and there, but he wasn't actually very content in the present moment. And he is encouraging him just to, you know, relax and calm down a bit, be more content in the present moment rather than always living in the future and planning this and wanting to finish this job so he can get back to his meditation, the sort of compulsive meditator's mind state that perhaps he had. His last, when he left, finally left at Lumpur Ginnery, his last teaching was, he said, mm, your practice is quite stable, you've attained much, just be careful with the teaching. You don't overdo it with the teaching, was his last instruction to Ajahn Chah. So again, just reminding him that even though he was a skilled teacher, a very charismatic teacher, I guess it could still be an obstacle to him in his practice. So he just reminded him of that.
before he left the monastery. Other times uh, after that period, he went off wandering again with uh, another monk. They went somewhere, I can't remember where they are. They went to another monastery, Nonghi. I think it's a time when he had a lot of lust coming up. He had one problem. He's in the Kompanom and staying in one little forest monastery and there's one widow lady who was still young, very attractive, started to offer food to him every day. And she was obviously getting very attached to him and he got to the point where he realized mm, she probably would like me as a husband. When he realized it got to that point, he said, I better leave. And he thought, I'm not going to wait even till tomorrow. I'll leave in the middle of the night. So there was an old, the old monk who was with him, who had traveled with him. He just said, we're off, we're leaving. He said, the old monk said, can't wait till tomorrow. Can't we leave in the morning when it's light? He said, no, we're off now. He went into the dead of the night to escape this woman. So sometimes you obviously had to be very firm and make quite firm decisions to protect his own practice. And he always said at Wapapong, he said, people would ask him, what's the biggest problem in the practice? He says, always. In the end, it comes down to women. The desire for women, the attraction to women. wasn't long after that, I believe he was walking and with that same monk and they stayed in one village and they picked up two boys, or young teenagers who were both slightly disabled. One was deaf and one had a bad leg, a malformed leg. They started to upatak, Ajahn Chah and the other monk come and bring them things and just do little acts of service and help wash the bowls and tidy around their spots in the forest every day. Ajahn Chah was contemplating how these boys were very faithful. They obviously had their own disabilities, but they had great faith which gave them some purpose in life. And they even had so much faith when Ajahn Chah, it came time to move on in his tudong, they wanted to follow and their parents allowed them. Perhaps they had no other sort of, nothing much else to do because they were both had some disability. Ajahn Chah said, you know, the, the deaf one, would, there'd always be problems because they'd never be hearing what's going on if anyone, if there was a conversation or an instruction. If he wasn't looking directly at the person speaking, he wouldn't get what they were saying. They had to use sign language. So he's always missing instructions and plans what they're doing where they're going the other one with the bad leg would walk they'd walk in a line through the forest on their tudong and because of his bad leg it would always he couldn't control it so well so he'd wrap around the good leg and he'd actually trip over but it didn't put him off he was so determined had so much commitment to go with the monks that he'd just get up and carry on walking Many times a day he'd actually fall over. 
This is an, another example where it's contemplating developing wise reflection because it's saying, mm, this, these boys, they have their disabilities, but they have tremendous faith in the Buddha and the teachings and they really want to practice and do good because they understand they have their karma, old karma has given them disabilities and they really want to make some merit and improve. And you're just reflecting, you say how, you know, many people with fully able-bodied people in this world, they give in to their kilesas and do all kinds of unwholesome things, foolish things, harmful things. There's these two boys, they've got severe disabilities and yet they're really, they have strong faith and commitment, they're really doing something good. In the end, it's your mind, isn't it? It's your mind, your intention, your the quality of your mind is the important thing, even more than your body, how physically fit you are or you aren't. He's contemplating that because he could just see every day the effort these boys were putting forth, and then you could you could contemplate you know, many people around. They have great health and great advantages, and they still do all kinds of destructive and foolish things. So he gave that as another example of wise reflection, just reflecting on karma and then how on. In the end, it's your state of mind and your intention is the most important thing, even more than the external conditions around you. It transcends them. With that little group, he also in one place he stayed he wanted to prove the uh, whether the old saying that they have in northeast thailand like if you never when you're camping in the forest never camp on the main path is a sort of saying they have he just wanted to investigate that he said you want to find out why do they say that never never camp along the main path in the forest so he said, oh, tonight I'm going to camp on the main path. They all set up their grots in the forest. But he put his right on the path with his back to the deep forest and his head facing down towards the village from where they come. He's right on the path. And he said, sure enough, not long into the night and there was a sound of footsteps padding through the forest on the dead leaves, crackling the leaves, rustling the leaves. And uh, before he even saw it, he got the smell, and the smell of death that accompanies a, a big tiger. And then a big tiger emerged just a few meters ahead of him. So he said, now he knows why they have that old saying, never sl sleep on a path in the forest, an old path. Because it's where the tigers will walk. He said, well, also again, learning wise reflection he just had to think we got the fear come up Ooh, and the tigers come but he just wanted to practice letting go of his fear so he just contemplated again karma so if he made any karma with that tiger in his mind he's thinking like this if i made any karma with you in the past if i've harmed you or eaten you or attacked you well so be it then this is the time you get your karmic revenge this is my debt I'll just have to pay it off. And this is the time. 
if we've never made any karma together, I've never harmed you, well then you can go on your way and be peaceful. And he's just contemplated like that <clears throat> to make his own mind peaceful in that situation. So again he said this is wise reflection, how you use it at a time when you might have suffering. His mind went quiet and at that moment the tiger just turned around and padded back off into the forest and he never saw it again. These are just small examples of Ajahn Chah gave you know, from one period in his life as a young Tudong monk. But just learning to wisely reflect on just the things that are happening around him, different situations, people he met, teachers he was with and so on. And obviously this is, can be as valuable, these are as valuable lessons as you know, developing deep states of samadhi and psychic powers and all the other things we talk about. But just learning to wisely reflect on dukkha and its cause and how to quieten the mind through wisdom, not just suppressing the dukkha or distracting ourselves, but confronting it, looking at it, and then using wisdom, applying wisdom there. So you get these teachings from Ajahn Chaya later on. He says, you know, when we suffer, it's because we have wrong thinking. We're not using our thinking correctly, so we suffer. So we have to train ourselves to think correctly, your wise thinking, samaditi. You know, it's something we just have to keep practicing, keep applying to our own mind in different situations with different moods, different problems arise. Look, look at it from different angles, try and understand it better. At the very least, you just contemplate all the dukkha I'm experiencing is still impermanent, it rises, passes away. It's a mood, it's a thought or a feeling. And so on. Just keep trying to apply wisdom to dukkha. Gradually it becomes more and more obvious what it is. And then you also, it also leads you to the cause. To see where the, the craving, the desire, the attachment is that needs to be seen and let go of. And this is how we become more experienced in the practice. Obviously you develop mindfulness more through the meditation, develop calm, states of calm. Well that facilitates the wisdom. The wisdom can function better. It lasts, you can contemplate longer. You can contemplate and see things more clearly when the mind is calm. So your wisdom can go into places and contemplate different experiences that perhaps you didn't notice before or didn't see or recognize before. So every part of the path has its role, has its function. But really it's wisdom that leads everything. You know, even precepts and vinaya, why do we keep it? Well, we keep it because it supports the practice. But that's wise reflection, isn't it? Why do we keep the precepts? When you understand why, that's wisdom. And then it leads on to keeping the precepts. That leads on to helping develop the mindfulness, the firmness of mind that leads on to samadhi. So wisdom leads the sila, it leads samadhi, and then that feeds back into the wisdom.
we're just willing to use our minds in this way we have all the resources all the things we need for the practice we don't necessarily need to attain lots of knowledge if that's our character we like to pick up a lot of knowledge contemplate it think it through then so be it but we don't have to do that we can also just use exactly what knowledge we have right now this body this mind and just apply the Dhamma to what we have already sometimes that more simple direct approach can be valuable even more valuable as well sometimes we burden ourselves with too much knowledge things become too complex and the path isn't very clear because of the too much knowledge in our head but just applying a bit of wisdom to what's going on in the here and now can be can get very good, quick good results but it takes practice you just have to keep willing to turn back and reflect on things look at things from different angles try and bring the mind to peace through developing some kind of wise reflection on our, our experience. So I'll leave you with these words for your, hope to encourage your contemplation and leave them with you tonight.